out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. And this week is a little bit different because it's not so much about music and the 80s indie pop scene or even David Bowie. It's going to be with a character called Tibetan Tony to his friends. I'm not sure if that was what he was born with. But he was part of the Tibetan-Ukrainian mountain troupe from the 70s, 80s and beyond. Um, and now is uh, running the kids' field, with a Z, obviously, at Glastonbury Festival and lots more besides. If you want to know any more information, just go kids field and um, yes you'll see it all there and much much more um, what they're up to and what he's up to but anyway look this is the interview you're going to get lots of information about this and that and uh, yes so after several or quite a long time casual chat we we got down to the interesting subject of the early formative years Tony it's over to you well you know I don't I I guess I mean, I guess, I, you know, I definitely gravitated towards music. And I got very, very early on, I got involved with a whole bunch of people in Brighton that ran a... There was the Unicorn Bookshop in Brighton. And I was a kind of... I was a sort of natural-born anarchist, I think. Yes. My first conscious thought was, this is definitely not right, we need to change it. And uh, I can remember, you know, I remember throwing copies of this banned book, the little red school book over over school walls and sort of getting involved in the Oz trial and all that sort of stuff. So I just sort of naturally gravitated towards the kind of, you know, the alternative and the festival scene, really. Yes. And did you, I mean, were you of the age where you could sort of experience that kind of the 60s and the, and the changing kind of vibe and the changing sort of styles, that sort of you know, made the 60s such a colourful decade. Well, yeah, I was a teenager in the 60s, but I wasn't, you know, it, um, I don't know, I don't think, unless you were sort of, you know, lived in London near Carnaby Street, for most people, the 60s didn't really change things. It wasn't really until the 70s that it kind of percolated through to the rest of the country, to be honest. Yes, absolutely. It, I know, but it's interesting because one... Because I was going to say, one of those famous photographers, <laughs> which I can't remember, there was three famous ones in, well, there's probably more, but in the 60s there was there was a gang of them, wasn't there? Um, and, uh, I mean, one of them did say, you know, if you if you lived in London in that small little scene, it was amazing. But if you were sort of a taxi driver in Newcastle, the 60s didn't really have a huge impact on you. I remember him mentioning. <laughs> I, th- I think it's probably the same with most movements. I mean, it was probably, you know, it was pretty similar, really, with the punk thing in the 70s, although, you know, it was taking off in a small area in London in 75, 76, it didn't really get through to everybody else until sort of new wave, really, with sort of, you know, until the late 70s. Yes. And did I you... mean, I was really lucky because I, I ended up, I ended up, well, I was sort of, in, I was involved with Watchfield in 1975, and then I went off because I, I was managing a band. I was managing this band called, uh, this is so weird, the band were called Visitor 2035. Right. And uh, now, you know, now, of course, we're kind of actually coming close. I can actually see the vague possibility that I might even still be alive in 
2035. Yes. But time, <laughs> the idea of 2035 was like way, way beyond our ken in the sort of 70s. But anyway, and after that, I, I ended up going hitchhiking around Europe and I got involved in making the Festival of Fools, uh, uh, Festival of Fools in Amsterdam and ended up helping to make a film about the Festival of Fools. Yes. Um, which never really got properly released. Apparently there's a copy of it in some museum in Israel. But, uh, yeah, which was, an, um, which was an astounding experience. And that's kind of where I met um, uh, all, all of... There's so many brilliant people. There was... Uh, what were they called? Uh, Great Salt Lake Mime and Friends Roadshow, and I think Incubus, I think Incubus were there, and, the, and people called um, Crystal Theatre. There were just, a, it was just an explosion of talent, and it was, and very much the punk thing was yes. coming through as well. And it was, that was, I think that in some ways that sort of changed my life, really, the Festival of Fools. Yes. It was a really, it was a really sort of seminal moment for me. Yeah, and what was what was the first festival that you went to? I think the first, the very first festival that I can remember was a festival that happened in Worthing in the Peter Pan playground. It was an illegal festival, very small. I'm trying to think who played there. Maybe it was the Pink Fairies. Anyway, it got busted by the police. Yes. And then we all ended up at some bird sanctuary where, classically, back in those days, you know, nobody had a generator or someone put petrol in the diesel generator or nobody had a drum kit. It was all so... I mean, early festivals were so unbelievably disorganised. You know, you can't imagine it now. <laughs> you know, it was all very kind of like... Everybody was sort of... You know, building, you know, throwing everything together with baler twine, and there were no stalls. There was nobody selling anything. Everybody was just sharing everything. You know, whatever you had, you shared. Whether it was drugs or tobacco or you know, cigarette papers. That you know, it was so. Yeah, it was so freeform, and it was just like everybody gathered and they shared everything they had. It was such a different world. It's it's really hard to imagine now. Yes, I could imagine. Well, I, I know from seeing, well, the you know the famous book as I mentioned, The Sun in the East, and there's various films that have kind of appeared from that. You know those those um, three day festivals or fairs, really, aren't they? You know, in East Anglia, and it it um, yes, there was not really anything to do with commercialization. It was all about community and sort of. I think there was a real spirit they of. Those were the paying ones. Those were the kind of later on. I'm talking about the really early festivals. It literally was everybody just shared what they had. You know, it was really, it was very, I can't, you know, like, for instance, I can't actually remember any stalls at Watchfield, and that was 1975. And this is the one the government gave, was that the uh, the Sid Rules one, which they gave the um, airfield and said, look, here you go. go that put- is, that's after Windsor, we somehow or other managed to persuade them uh, if we couldn't have a festival in the Queen's back garden, yes. then uh, they should give us this old airfield. I mean, it's a, it's astounding now to think that that was even a possibility, <laughs> that they would sort of, you know, roll over. But then there was quite a 
big uproar after after Windsor because they they were you know this over and it's the same story played over and over again, but they were really heavy-handed, as you know as they were at Ingleston Common and at Nostral Priory and eventually at the Beanfield when they finished the whole idea of free festivals off. Yes, that was not going to happen. And did you meet Wally during that period, you know, from the free festival period, you know, time? I probably did, but I don't really remember. I mean, my memories of all of those days are quite hazy, to be honest. You know, it's such a long time ago. And I have to tell you, the drugs were very strong back then. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and like I say, they were freely available and very much shared. Yes. You know, it was so, uh, there was quite a lot of missing, you know, missing moments. Yes. You really, you think, well, did that really happen or was that just some sort of illusion? <laughs> it was a bit like the, the, those Pete Loveday cartoons, aren't they? The Russell, the saga of a friendly man. Um, exactly. It, 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 was, it was very, uh, yes, you strolled into one, one tent to another, didn't you, really? Or one bender, depending on what people have managed to sort of construct, really. Geodesic well, domes were were exciting. What the first the, the first geodesic TV. dome was very exciting. No. Pardon? I say the infamous yellow TB, TP that you've probably heard about. Have you ever heard of the yellow TP? Well, I, I remember <laughs> only decades later, you know, there was there was various TPs that were you know quite popular. <laughs> yeah, well, this, the, the yellow TP was like one of the very first, and it was a huge lodge, and it was kind of a shared space. And anybody and everybody was sort of welcome in there. And I think there were, there are quite a few legends about what happened in the yellow teepee. Yes. Did you, I mean, going back to slightly your younger days, what were your kind of, what was family life like, you know, with, you know, like your parents? Did they, were they at all bohemian or were they very kind of... Old? I was, so I was adopted. Right. And I didn't get on with my adopted parents at all. I left home when I was 15. And um, so, no, they were they were very much not involved. They were very much not involved. And it, weirdly, I, I, I finally found my mother in my 40s. And um, bizarrely, we'd actually been at quite a few of the same events. We were we were both at, at um, Greenham Common. And we had various mutual friends, which is quite bizarre, isn't it? That is the most bizarre. Did it feel when you met her? Did it feel like okay, this now makes sense? You know, I did. It, we, we were. It was the weirdest thing. We met in '92. I she died. Actually, she died about 17 years ago. I knew her for 12 years. But when I first met her, we had a conversation, and we were just bizarrely on the same page with everything, religion, politics. I mean, it's just, very, and like I say, we'd been at, we'd been at sort of similar, you know, we'd been at the same events, uh, you know, which were, you know, we were all kind of, you know, protests or whatever. Yes. And we had quite a few mutual friends, which is the oddest thing, really, oddest thing ever. God, that is a really strange one. And did you ever sort of um, keep in touch with your sort of the adopted parents? Yeah, I, I did. I did. We did. I, I buried the hatchet, and we, you know, I I forgave them or whatever. Yes. And uh, yeah, we moved on. It was just, you know, just it's a it's a sort of a weird story. It is. Very, I could imagine. I can't relate to it, but yeah, I could imagine it must just 
be one of those ones that's tricky. And did you know when when the sort of sixties were coming to an end, and there was that kind of period where you you know there'd been Brian Jones died, then you know I suppose there was um, I suppose Woodstock looked good on film, but it was a bit of a disaster for people who went there. But then it was like the death of Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, um, Janis Joplin. You know, then obviously Altamont sort of happened. Charles Manson, did it feel a little bit like, oh, God, is that the end of it? Because, you know, when when the sort of the early part of the 60s, I remember watching one of those films with, you know, Mick Jagger being interviewed about about 63, like, and the person said, how long do you think this will last? Meaning, you know, his music career or popular music. And he, he did that little kind of looking up going, oh, probably another 18 months, you know, we might keep going. <laughs> and, and obviously we all chuckle because obviously, you know, 50 years later, they're still managing to do it. Did it, did it feel a little bit like, oh, no, that's, that's a shame. You know, I'm now come to the end of my teens and, and the 60s and, and popular music. You know, they're right. You know, Tony Benn wasn't keen on popular music or... You know, the be you know Radio One, and and it was like trying to get rid of the pirate ships. Did it feel a bit like you were up against it at all? I don't know. I mean, it, I, for me, it's always felt like it's up against it. It's never changed. It's never fucking changed. It's you know, it's been the same situation. You know, we're in the same situation as we've always been. We're all you know fighting the establishment. I mean, we've just had that perfect example in two thousand nineteen you know, with Jeremy Corbyn, where someone was actually seriously challenging the establishment and the, the entire pack ganged up to ensure that there was absolutely no one was going to change the die. And I think, so for me, I didn't really, you know, I didn't, I, 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 you know, obviously I get all that and I, you know, I was, I was there and I lived through it, but you didn't really feel like that was the big thing. It just sort of carried on. Yes. Like I say, for a lot of people, unless you lived in that small part of London, the sort of 60s for most people happened in the 70s anyway. Yes, you know? I guess. So, I mean, I do, I, you know, I remember, I remember sort of, I remember watching, um, I remember watching Easy Rider and that was a kind of a, that was a sort of seminal moment. That was a kind of like, oh, fuck, this is, you know, there was, yeah, there was a lot of that sort of stuff going on. And of course, you know, we were all fighting the Vietnam War. You know, there was just... It's, it's... It just... I don't know that you can just so simply and succinctly wrap decades and movements up with a bow. And, I mean, you know, for, for years and years, all, all through the sort of 70s and 80s, you know, people said, oh, festivals are over. Oh, you know, oh, it's the remnants of Woodstock and all that. And then, you know, look at how it is now. Festivals... You know, have never been as big a business as they are now. No, that's, I know. Well, I was a bit amazed, actually, during, I think it was like the mid to late 80s. It did feel, I, I went to a few fairs, festivals, I don't know, and um, they were on stubble fields and they weren't that much fun. <laughs> they were a little bit, you know, there yeah, was yeah. like, there was a kind of a marquee, a rather boring pub band, and there was a little lot, there was a lot of reminiscing about the, the golden time, and this was like the mid-80s, and it, it felt a little bit like they were, OK, but well, this could go either way. And then, obviously, as you said, suddenly festivals, there was new gang, there was the sort of, I suppose, ecstasy came along. You know, bands like The tra uh, the Levelers started to kick off, and then The Orb, and then there was those Glastonbury's of the 90s where you just went, oh, yeah, there's a bit of a different soundtrack, but the energy is back again, isn't it? It, it sort of picked up a lot during that period of the late 80s onwards. But there was a few years where it didn't feel much fun when you're on a stubble field in summer going, 
Mm. <laughs> no, well, uh, you know, it was it was very well after the bean field. I mean, we you know we actually all left the country. The Tibetan Ukrainian Mountain Troop. We all left the country. We we'd actually we'd always been quite you know quite a small group of people who didn't really we didn't really take anybody on. People sort of were either crazy enough to suddenly be with us, or they weren't. We weren't sort of you know we weren't interviewing people to be a member of the troop. Yes. And then in '84, we you know we just well it was obvious it was all over. And it was quite clear, you know, we, you know, I had a board made up, which if you go on YouTube, you'll see, I think it's um, one of Chris Waite's films. And it's, uh, you know, it's, I think it's called Stonehenge Dreams or something. And right at the beginning, there's a big board with a sort of a weird alien and there's a sort of bubble coming out of his head saying it's 1984. And I was constantly telling people, it's 1984, it's 1984. And I remember having a huge row with, uh, with Sid Rules at Stonehenge because I wanted, you know, I wanted us to take the stones, you know, to, to actually, you know, we were enough of us to actually take the actual stones and have the vessel amongst the stones. And uh, I can remember having this huge argument with Sid Rules and he was sort of saying, Oh, Tony, oh, you know, we will do, you know, what about next year? And I can remember sort of shouting at him, you know, they're probably not going to be here next fucking year. We've got to do it now. But, uh, yeah, I didn't quite pull that off. No. <laughs> I was right. You know, it was the last Stonehenge. It was. <laughs> Sid Rules. You... It was clearly the last Stonehenge. Yes. See that coming. So at the end of this, at the end of the season, we did one big gig in Ruffham, and then we basically said, "Listen, anybody who wants to come with us, we're all we're going. You know, we're going abroad. You know, join the troop now. Put your money in the hat and let's go." And I think we took, I think we took about 40, 40, 40 odd people and ten or twelve vehicles, and we all set off for Harwich. Fantastic. And, uh, there was quite a lot of, you know, people like, oh, my God, how are we going to make out? How are we going to do it? And we were just like, well, we're going to drive until we run out of diesel, and then we're going to go busking. <laughs> and that's what we did. That's, that's absolutely what we did. We, we, we left the country in 84 because, you know, we could, you know, I could clearly see it coming. I, you know, there was no doubt in my mind that, you know, Thatcher had finished off the miners and the postal workers and the dockers and you know, everybody else, and well, we were, you know, the free festival crew was was going to be the last thing that was going to be finished off. There was no way that they were going to allow these, you know, these freedom festivals to carry on. And, of course, they weren't, you know, there's all this sort of nonsense about there was some sort of massive threat. They weren't any kind of a threat to anybody, but they were an example of sort of, of freedom, of, of, you know, of people just getting on and finding fields and having a festival. And it, it incensed the, you know, the fascists. They just couldn't stand the idea that there was something that was unregulated or, you know, that had, had that title of freedom amongst it. And so, yeah, they, 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 they killed that. Yes, much, the 80s. And utterly. Well, I, think it was the, I think it was the largest arrest uh, in, in peacetime. It was the largest arrest of civilians ever. Blimey, it's so bad. So how did it, I mean, just going back, because obviously 
Having looked at the, what's it called, the Waveney Clarion, which was this kind of publication. Oh, yes, yes, I remember the Waveney Clarion. That came yeah. out and sort of, I managed to sort of get quite a lot of copies. So there's a sort of a, a nice kind of Arcadian, Arcadia sort of optimism and romanticism during the early 70s. You can get that vibe that, you know, people have come out of the cities, they're setting up their communes, they're sort of trying to sort of grow vegetables left, right and centre. And they've got the John, is it Seabrook or uh, the self-sufficiency book, the Crank's cookbook, you know, things are looking optimistic, you know. One, we, Earth, one Earth Planet, was it called One Earth Planet or something? Yes, probably. But, but there was a lot of optimism and, and sort of folkiness as well, wasn't there? What was your, so what happens in the 70s to, for you to form the, the sort of the theatre group? What was the kind of moment that it all started to happen and come together? Um, well, I think, well, the, uh, what actually, what happened with the Tibetan-Ukrainian mountain troupe is I'd, I'd got involved in the Festival of Fools and then they did the very first Festival of Fools here, over here in this country, in the West Country. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to hitch down to the West Country, uh, down to Woolacombe, I think it was, and see if I can find any of the people from the Festival of Fools, uh, from, you know, from Amsterdam and from that crowd, people I knew. So I went down there, and I couldn't really find anybody because it was very much a different crowd of people. And then I bumped into this amazing character in a cafe called Simple Simon in about sort of six or seven o'clock in the morning. A place called they were doing a festival at a place called Woolacombe, and it was right on the cliff edge. It was as usual, unseasonably freezing cold summer weather, <laughs> blowing a gale, soaking wet totally miserable you know and i met this character called michael balfour who's a who's a an actor who's a he was in about 200 odd films as a really and he was the funniest man i've ever met i was literally rolling on the floor with laughter at seven o'clock in the morning because this guy was so funny and he introduced me to his son a guy called perry and uh another guy called mikey and from that friendship grew up this idea. H, we, we, he was it, Michael Balfour came, had this sort of idea of an old sort of musical sketch, uh, called, with with this sort of idea of this sort of mad tribe of people called the Tibetan Ukrainians, who he'd sort of discovered somewhere, and that was the sort of basis. That was the basis. For the whole madness, we set up this thing called the Tibetan-Ukrainian Mountain Troop. Fantastic. What year was that, then? Uh, that would have been 79, maybe. Right. right. I think that was 79. Yes. Yes. That oh. must have been about 1979. And then, and then you know, and then I just, I, I got involved with them and sort of went on the road and we, and we created this, yeah, so it was kind of like a moving commune, really, because we all lived out of one pot. Yes. Uh, all the, all the, you know, we had a treasure, and uh, and we had a, we had this uh, 60, 60 by forty blue and white marquee, which we, uh, which we, 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 we designated as our floating embassy, so that uh, you know everybody would, you could, could seek uh, refuge in our floating embassy. Yes. We and we just toured. I mean, we just non-stop toured. We did every every festival, every kind of uh, you know, every sort of freedom fair or protest. Or we just we went everywhere and put our 
put our marquee up as part of it yeah. and sort of added our madness. And for sort of almost no money, you know, we were sort of, we, we were doing this whole thing for, for virtually nothing. And how did that kind of, because I know, I suppose, especially in the, in the world of music, when people get together, there's just a good vibe, isn't it? You have that honeymoon phase, which most bands is about 12 months, you know, rehearsing, practicing. No, there's no money, so there's no arguments. And then, you know, if there's something that, you know, like a bit of success, you know, they get in the studio, they do a single and then they get a little bit of traction, you know, and I suppose with a lot of bands in the 80s, you know, someone like John Peel would give you a play and then a session and an album. Things kind of going kind of well, the honeymoon period. And then it gets a bit tricky when, you know, things start to need to be sorted out or there needs to be a sort of an idea of how decisions are made. What was it like for your theatre company? Because it sounds like it was a bit more, um, I wouldn't say unstructured, but it probably was a little bit more fluid, I think. The oh, yeah, it was very, very much unstructured. Well... It sort of changed, I think it must have been in, like, 1980, 1980, 1981, because Perry, the son of uh, of Michael Balfour, he decided he wanted to do proper circus. Right. So he split. Him and, uh, him and this guy called Mikey, who was sort of the other, other part of him, they split, and they went off. Uh, they went off originally with, um, what was his name? Something Hurst, the Pig Circus, I remember him. <laughs> as, I can't remember what his name is. His, his, his ex, his missus now is like a massive, like if you want a massive big top, she's the woman to go to. But uh, So they sort of split. They wanted to do sort of straight circus. Right. It was very much like, no, I want to do, I want to do festivals and events and, you know, I, I was I was much more politically motivated, I suppose. Yes. Um, so they so that that so that that happened. They split, and eventually they became uh, Circus Hazard. God, that's a that's great. Who name. they eventually became, and they're, they're probably Mikey and Pe- Perry and Mikey are probably the best clowns I've I've ever known. They're the funniest, most fantastic clowns. They did. They ended up doing quite a lot of work with uh, Jerry Cottle. And then they joined up, you know, sort of interesting sort of crossover. Uh, they ended up with, you know, Nick Turner went and worked with them as well. You know, Nick Turner from Hawkwind. Yes. He went and worked with them with. And and as also part of that was what created uh, Our Chaos. Right. We yes. did a number of festivals in France. And out of that kind of, out of that melting pot, because when we originally met, Piero and all that lot, they were doing a very, very traditional horse-drawn, you know, proper sort of horse-drawn French circus. And then they sort of met us, and it kind of was the gel that created our chaos. So, um, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, it's all about evolution, isn't it? It's like music. I mean, I, I love listening to new music because everybody draws on the past, and then you sort of add your bit into it, and it kind of evolves. It moves on. Yes. By like anything. I mean, you know, I always say to people, you know, back, back in the day when people were going on about, oh, you know, bloody free festivals coming around there, it's like, have you not read Far From The Madding Crowd? Do you not have any clue that this isn't something new? Festivals and fairs are something that go back to, you know, the beginning of time, you know, probably the original Stonehenge. You know, people have always gathered together and, you know, lit fires and feasted and danced and sung and 
you know, fornicated and all that stuff since the beginning of time, you know? Yes, absolutely. No, I can, I completely, yeah, I completely get that because we've always wanted to be somehow entertained and we always like to see something coming in. I, I always find that kind of world... Of the... That's what the authorities hate as well. That's what they really don't like. They don't like the idea that a whole, you know, thousands of us to, can get together without a lot of, you know, police and barricades and all the rest of it and have a really good time. I mean, and that is that is the the wonder of festivals. That's the best thing about it. Of course, what what's happened now in a lot of cases is it's all been totally commercialised and it's just a sort of, you know, it's just another capitalist event, which, you know, which ends, you can end up with a really bad vibe, which is, of course, what happened when they, you know, when they, they tried to, uh, to relaunch, um, uh, you know, the big American festival. Yeah, Woodstock. Woodstock, yeah. The, the, you know, the, the punters tore the place up. <laughs> because yeah, they tried to sort of, you know, Coca-Cola, Big Mac it all. And that wasn't the vibe. And actually, how you keep, you know, how you get the vibe together at these big festivals back in the day, you know, Glastonbury and all the rest of it, is because the vibe was so good, nobody wanted to smash it up. Nobody wanted to hurt the other participants because you all felt part of it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, though I think Michael Lang, who was one of the organisers, I think he was he was particularly poor, really, in his organisational skills. From what what I gather from the Woodstock one, the, the one in '69, I think they only had one toilet and and no. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, I'm the same with the same with with um, with the Isle of Wight, and the same with lots of festivals. I mean, you know, same with Glastonbury, right up until sort of. You know, probably up until 2000, when the big fence came in and everything, it was all hanging by a thread. I mean, <laughs> totally hanging by a thread. But it was hanging by a thread because people were so into it. And because people were so into it, loads of people, you know, went that extra mile to make it work. You yes. know, that's, that's the difference between commercial events or events that have got a vibe and these sort of, you know, Dalag 45 type Leeds and Reading sort of events, you know? Yes, absolutely. I mean, were you always kind of drawn to the sort of the theatre world, you know, more than, I don't know, trying to sort of, as a sort of an art form, you know, or sort of a sort of performance? Was that the, the you know, was that something that you instantly sort of kind of, I don't know, vibed with? Yeah, I think so. I th- yeah, it's that egalitarian thing, isn't it? It's, and, and that's... That's very much what the what the Tibetan Ukrainian Mountain Troop was about as well. We were, you know, although we carried the main stage for uh, for Stonehenge, you know, the, the Nick Turner's Pyramid stage, and we'd put big stages up somewhere else. You know, our tent was very much like the stage was virtually on the ground, and it was it was very much about, and that was the vibe that Michael Balfour gave us. It's like everybody is a performer. Everybody can be part of this. Yes. Everybody can be part of the show. You know, that rather than that sort of separation, you know, where there's, oh, there's these huge stars up on this stage, you know, 50 foot high, surrounded by security. But, you know, and, and which, and actually, I think that that is what makes Glastonbury so special. It's not the big stages. It's actually when the big stages have closed down and the fact that, Everybody is roaming around 24-7, you know, all together, 
which doesn't happen at virtually any other festival anymore, you know? Yes, ab- no, I mean, absolutely. Reading and Leeds, it's all, you know, there's a sort of compound where the music is and the stalls, and then you're sort of ushered out into a sort of, you know, an open prison uh, <laughs> camping. And it's, you know, it's, uh, which is horrible. It's yes. horrible. It's just it's a horrible vibe. I mean, it's just it's like that, uh, you know, the recent American, uh, nasty American festival, which um, I don't know whether you saw the one, you know, Astro World or whatever it was called. Oh, I haven't come across Astro World. I remember there's there's the the big kind of commercial one near Palm Springs, Coachella, which is kind of just right. No, but there's this one earlier on this year where a few, uh, I think it was like eight or nine people were crushed to death. Oh it's, God, yes, that was horrendous. Yeah, that was just you know terrible. Yeah. If you, I mean, if you see the pictures of you know right at the beginning when they crashed the gate and they're all sort of just like running over each other and it's just that whole. You know, it's that whole, it's that whole capitalist me, me, me world. Yes. And that's, you know, what's what the early festivals, you know, I suppose, I mean, on some levels, part of the reason why the Albion Fairs really came unstuck in the end was because in the sort of 60s and 70s, it was very much like we were all one. It, I, you know, I can remember sort of hobnobbing with Arabella Churchill and all these people who, you know, obviously came from, you know, bloody landed gentry and huge money, but it didn't matter at that point. There wasn't, there wasn't a sort of, there wasn't a separation. And I think when sort of, when the kind of the convoy or the working classes suddenly appeared at these kind of Albion fairs, I don't think they couldn't absorb it somehow. You know, they couldn't, it was, everybody was sort of playing this kind of, um, Camelot, sort of, you know, the roast beef of jolly old England. And, and actually, a whole load of sort of, you know, squatters from Newcastle didn't really fit into that picture. <laughs> no, I think that, um, I think there was that sort of moment where the punk, punk started to sort of go to festivals as well as the squat movement. And, and then you, I guess in, you know, in Norwich, we had Argyle Street, which I don't know if yeah. you... Argyle Street, I squatted one of the first houses there. Right, you were there. You were in Argyle. With your, and did you have the bus? I did, I did have my bus there. Um, we, uh, you know, we, put, uh, we actually put up half of our tent on one of the front of one of the houses at one point. Nice. For a, for a street party. Excellent. That is amazing. I mean, that's, um, it's quite something of trying to keep all this together. I mean, did you ever have moments where it all felt a little bit like you were going to, yeah, just juggling a lot of balls in the air? Oh, it was madness. I mean, I don't know how we managed any of it, quite honestly, because all the vehicles were illegal. Nobody, you know, there were no MOTs. Nothing was taxed. Hardly anybody had a licence. You know, we were all smoking copious amounts of unbelievably fantastic cannabis. Uh, you know, I, I, how we managed it was a, was a miracle, really, but we were driven. We were, you know, we were really like, you know, music for the people, entertainment for the people. And that was our, that was our whole thing was, you know, we'd get from one gig to the next. And it was, yeah, we were very, we were very committed to being free. You know? Yes, absolutely. And at that stage, you, there was still enough fairs going on most of the weekend, most weekends as well, for you to to go out and go to, you know, was it Ruffham you mentioned? And 
Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did Rough and Tree Fair. We did. Well, we did. Yeah, we did a few. We did a few because they did one in Thetford Forest. They did a few, and then there was the Albion Fairs, and then there was a lot of other. There were a lot of other events. I mean, we like I say, we were doing. You know, we were doing the peace fairs, and we, you know, we were doing like Victoria Park. You know, when the GLC came along, when at one, you know, one point I actually, I actually had my bus parked on the embankment where, it, on the exact spot now where the the you know where the London Eye is. Excellent. That's I had my bus parked there over Christmas, and we had the tent up on. Um, uh, Jubilee Green, I think it's called, which was like, you know, it was all part of the GLC. Yes. Right opposite the Houses of Parliament. And I remember we did a sort of, you know, we did a 24-hour fast over Christmas Day. <laughs> well, it's quite healthy. It's good to have a fast, isn't it, really? And some lemon, <laughs> and some lemon juice as well. Yeah, it's good for you. <laughs> it's, surpri- it's surprising. If you can get through the morning, which I always find is the Difficult. They just got involved in anything and everything that was happening, you know. And if there wasn't anything happening, then we'd put on our own events. Yeah. You know, like we spotted this place on the A3 called near the Robin Hood roundabout. And I remember we put an event there, which uh, which was on, <laughs> actually made time out and everything. It was, uh, it, was on, it was on Pancake Day, and I put a, a thing in the paper saying, Rock against subliminal Christianity. <laughs> Excellent. They must have loved that one. Yeah, because I got did... busted halfway through it. The police arrived and that all got closed down. Yeah. yeah. And of course, we had our own in house band with the Tibetan Ukrainian Mountain Troop as well. Yeah. Called the Mystic Mankers. Nice. That's a good name. Did you. Um... There must have been a lot of creative moments on that band. So did you have a kind of a, a set group of you who sort of held this all together? Yeah, there was a core group of us, definitely. And then a lot of people came and came and went. There was, yeah, there was quite, there was a small core group of us that sort of kept it all together. Yeah. And when, um, and sort of during that period, I mean, Thatcher got into power in 79, then there was the Falkland crisis or war, really. Oh. And that, that kind of was a big game changer for her because she became suddenly really popular. And then there was Greenham, then there was the minor strike, as you mentioned, and then the, the Battle of the Beanfield. So during that time, I mean, it was a very edgy time, wasn't it? It wasn't, oh, yeah, the minor strike. Yeah, yeah, it was very edgy. And, um, I mean, how, how were you sort of, did you feel, I mean, if there was one moment in your life when you must have felt really under threat, this... The, the, the kind of early 80s must have been it, really, because as, as, as we kind of can piece together, I think when the Beanfield happened, there was an element that the police were told, don't worry, do what you want to, because you're not going to get any problems. You know, there, will, there won't be any court cases. What, whatever you do is going to be fine. Just make sure you put your overtime sheet in at the end of the week. And um... Like I say, we, we, left, we left in the autumn of 84... And we did have every intention of coming back for Stonehenge 85. And then at the very last moment, uh, weirdly, weirdly, I was, up in this, I was up in the Pyrenees looking after this farmhouse for someone. And then completely out of the blue, I think I might have just actually, uh, yeah, I was just having my first child. Um, and uh, completely out of the blue, I had a phone call which was, you know, was back in landline, landline. So I had a phone call from, from, from Michael Balfour, 
as he later became known, Ancient Hazard. And um, and he was just saying, oh, and he was quite he was quite pissed, and he was like, oh, don't come back, oh, you know, bad, bad champ, blah blah blah. So we decided, we decided instead of going back for Stonehenge, which because we had a nasty feeling about it all, we decided to go to Switzerland to see the Dalai Lama, who was doing the very first of this ceremony is called the Kalachakra. It was the first time it had ever been done outside of, uh, outside of Tibet. So we decided, to, we decided to go to Switzerland. And in fact, yeah, it was on the Swiss border that I uh, cut the roof off my double-decker bus. You thought, let the, let the sun shine. This is well, no, it's because you cannot be more than four metres high to get into Switzerland. So we arrived at the border <laughs> and they were like, you know, oh, Kalahoot. <laughs> and I was, you know, ooh, I tried to lie about it, but you couldn't. Right. And uh, and because the tram lines are set at 4.25, which is exactly how tall my bus was previously, uh, they were like, no, there's no way you can come into Switzerland. So I pulled off the, you know, we pulled, I'd actually seen some guys chopping up these huge sort of sewerage pipes on the way there. And so we stopped and... Asked them to borrow their their, their sort of um, chainsaw grinder type thing, and uh, I chopped the roof off my bus. Blimey! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, is this right? Oh God, I've gone. Is this where the community is, Christiana? Is that is that? Oh, in... that's Denmark. Oh, I'm so terrible. <laughs> Not even close. Well, vaguely, it's Europe. Um, yes. So then, eighty-five. How many buses did you go through, by the way? Have you been? Um, um, well, me personally, I originally I had one bus which blew up on the way to one of the very first festivals. Now, where was it in France, in Brittany? I can't remember what it was called now. Oh, yeah, that blew up on the way there. So I I managed to get it back to I managed to get it back to to England and. Um, and then I did that up, and I raffled that at Stonehenge in like 1981, I think 1981, 1982. Yes. And with the money from that raffle, I bought a bus from Klaus, just outside Bury St Edmunds, and then I swapped that for the double decker, which I still have. Nice. That at is... the very last Stonehenge in 1984. God, that's amazing. They're built to last, aren't they? It's the, I think it's the only... I, as far as I know, I don't know whether Janet and Smush have still got their bus on the road. That's a bit doubtful. But it may well be the only vehicle left on the road that was at Stonehenge 84. Yeah. Jesus Christ. So then you're in Switzerland. Europe, what happened? You know. What happens... Next, do you sort of start to, I don't know, think it's time to come home? Uh, yeah, well, we, you know, we travelled around Europe for quite a while. I've worked with various, various people. I've, you know, the troops sort of, the troop gradually sort of fell apart, really, because without any new blood and, you know, we were just busking, basically. We were, you know, we, we were living by busking and we picked up a few new people, but gradually we sort of ran out of steam. Yes, and uh, and I had a, I had a couple of children. I had a couple of children, 
all my all three of my children were born in my double decker bus um and we, yeah and i think we just sort of 1987 1988 something like around about that time we decided we'd sort of you know we sort of had enough my partner had had enough and so we 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 originally we came back to Ruffham. oh excellent did you go to was it john agnew's land on the green yeah. deserts we did we were sort of well, we've been involved with John for a long time, actually. Yes. Uh, from the from the sort of early days, he'd sort of tagged along with us, and uh, you know, like a lot of rich people waiting for their uh, waiting for their inheritance. Oh yes, that's which true. Which only became obvious later on. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, but yeah, so I ended up at Ruffham for a while, and I put on a few fairs at Ruffham, uh, and then I, you know, then I sort of. I got involved with I got involved with Glastonbury because I've known Michael from way way back, and um, yeah, and, and 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 you know you know now that I I I run the kids field at Glastonbury. Yes, which is incredibly impressive. But that was a kind of interesting time because to be honest, eighty seven was my first Glastonbury, and it was kind of mind blowing because I'd never experienced. I mean, I'd been to a few little kind of fairs festivals, but nothing like that first Glastonbury where you sort of walk down the main tra- track going to the Greenfield or the King's Meadows they call it and it was just kind of you know the whole length of that you know people either side selling drugs full-on wasn't it and it was it was pretty <laughs> yeah, well I wasn't I we were still abroad in 87 right so I, I can't so now the very the actual the first time I ever did anything at, at Glastonbury at Worthy Farm was 1980 we did as the Tibetan Ukrainian Mountain Troop, we did the very first uh, green gathering that was then back then was called the Ecology Party. Mm. Yes. And we put our tent up, we put up our 60 by 40 for the Ecology Party. That was when, God, this is a, it was so long ago, Sid Rule was the president at that point. And it was before the kind of greens had become, well, had become kind of, you know, acceptable even. Yeah, because Glastonbury had done those first ones, which featured even David Bowie at one stage and um, Mark Boland. No, was yeah, Mark... That, but those, those were the actual festival. This, the Green Gathering was something separate from all that. Yes. It it, it, the, first, the first few happened at Worthy Farm. That's right, yes. And then I think they had a go again, sort of... They gave up after losing probably lots of money in the early 70s, didn't they? And then sort of came back again. Was it 81 was that kind of first Glastonbury? Yeah, I think so. Well, you know, Michael did the very first one in 1970 uh, and lost a whole load of money. Yes. Then And then Arabella and... Um, oh, oh, oh yes, Andrew Who's, Kerr. Andrew Kerr. Andrew Carr, yeah. Andrew Carr, who's a lovely, lovely man. And and Arabella, who I actually, against all the odds, I got on really well with Arabella because she was, you know, she was quite a difficult person. She was uh, very, you know, she was quite outspoken. And she didn't, you know, she didn't sort of, she didn't suffer a lot of people, but she was always really nice to me, to be honest. I always got on really well with her, which is weird because I'm pretty sure she knew my views on her granddad and the royal family and 
a lot of other things. <laughs> yes, but yeah, um, it's interesting because there was also during that period there was some amazing. There was like the greatest show on legs, wasn't there? Which was um, yeah. Who do you know what? Who got got their main act from us? At the Festival of Fools in 1980, yes, we did. That was one of our acts. Was the was the uh, was the the tea for two dance? We, we, and we used to do it with bits of paper, and we did it at that Festival of Fools. So um, and it sort of shocked a load of people. And Malcolm Hardy, yes, all that lot saw it, and that's where they got. That's they actually got. The um, the balloon dance from the Tibetan Ukrainian Mountain Troupe. God, yeah, well. So there's a bit of history for you. R Roland Rivron. Was it Roland, Roland Rivron? I can't remember his quite name. Something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. That's the one, is it? Malcolm Hardy. Yeah, my God, Malcolm. My God, he died. Malcolm was a great character. Really, really, really fabulous guy. I mean, we used to see a lot of those people because we did... Like I say, we did all this sort of, you know, we did every kind of weird little festival and event with our tent everywhere. So, and back then, you know, there were very few structures. So, you know, everybody basically played in our tent at some point or another. When did Croissant Nerve start? Was that a bit later? Oh, that was much later. Yeah, that started, that started out of Ruffham. That started probably about 80... Eight, eighty-eight, eighty-nine, somewhere around about then. Yeah, because there was a commune, wasn't there? Shrub Farm with Tim and Molly, and um, yeah, they were part of Green Desert. Well, there's a, let, let's get this right. There was a commune, and then Tim and Molly moved there and tried to throw everybody out and sell the place. <laughs> yes, I think I, I'd heard slightly the same story. Um, yeah, no, Tim was a bit of a yeah, because you know, he sort of ensconced himself. Sort of on my on my coattails, really. He ensconced himself at, at uh, Green Desert and basically bankrupt, bankrupted the organisation. And then he moved into Shrub Farm because Shrub Farm is one of the few places that was set up as a real, you know, proper commune. It's like whoever lives there owns the place. And he was invited in by someone. Him and Molly were invited in by someone, and they promptly started to throw everybody else out. And then at some point, he actually tried to sell the place. And I remember actually, because I'm one of those people that knows knows everybody, I can remember phoning all all over the place to find the original members to stop him actually selling the place. Dear old Tim. Yes, I know. I'd, I'd met him a few times. And um, yeah, I was, I was both kind of a, I suppose it's like that thing. You must have it, you know, you're slightly attracted because they kind of got a, a, a vibe and you think, God, this is great. And then you also, with age, you think, but there is something a little bit tricky about them, you know. And, um, I, I think, you know, Tim is kind of like, He's like a poor man's Tony Blair. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, great comment. I think that says it all, really, isn't it? You know, he's seemed to me. I was just trying to think how would you how would you describe him? Yeah. But that's kind of how he was. It's sort of odd. I mean, I remember when he sort of when he got ensconced at Green Deserts, and I was like, I was absolutely shocked that all these sort of sensible people were taken in by him. I was really, I couldn't really quite believe it. 
But that's, you know, that's how a lot of people work, isn't it? I mean, he, well, he had a lot of confidence. He had a lot of front and he, you know, he had a bit of a vibe and he could sort of, you know, he gave a lot of chat, you know, and I could see because I went to a few events and was like, oh, yeah, he's, you know, in the 90s. This is the very early 90s. And yeah, well, you know, that's how I got to know him and then went down to Shrub. But then, yeah, kind of also found him a little bit, you know. Yeah, there was something you just kind of thought, hey, I'm not going to get too involved with this guy. You know, he's... he's actually, okay. we, uh, he was actually... His hazard name was General Hazard. <laughs> so Circus Hazard, everybody in Circus Hazard sort of had a hazard name. And uh, Tim has always been known as General Hazard. <laughs> he avoided at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> so then, so then, you know, with with that kind of like with any scene, it starts to sort of feel a little bit like, oh yeah, this isn't quite excited anymore. Even though we loved Hawkwind, they're not the great thing. And then, sort of the late eighties, you know, there was the sort of next movement of the the kind of I suppose it was ecstasy and the rave movement, and and a, suddenly a different soundtrack, wasn't it? With the people like the Orb stuff started to appear and um you know you've got a you know probably a lot better music actually not better music but you know just a different style how did that kind of um go down with your scene and and sort of feeling well, i'll be i'll be honest but i found a lot of that quite difficult because i you know we went abroad and there was one vibe and i can remember coming back in sort of whenever it was 88 and 89 and just realizing how sort of brutalised and traumatised everybody had been by the Thatcher years. You know, people I'd known before who were like, yeah, man, oh, he's cool, were sort of saying things like, you know, I'm going to go around and do his kneecaps in. You know, it was sort of everything had become, you know, people were very, were very brutalised by the Thatcher years. And, it, and for a lot of people, and then the sort of party movement, was quite nihilistic in lots of ways. You know, it was very much like, you know, fuck it, let's all get trashed and party because we're all going to die tomorrow anyway. There was, you know, there was, there was quite a nihilistic vibe on it, but it was wonderful insofar as suddenly everybody did start to dance, which was an amazing thing. And a lot of, you know, a lot of that disco kind of, you're looking at my bird, I'll punch your face in, suddenly became, oh, I'm in love with you, you're wonderful. <laughs> there, was, there was a lot of positivity to it as well. And, that, you know, it, it, you know, like everything, it, it has, you know, it has pluses and minuses. And, of course, there were a lot of people who were making huge money out of the raves, you know, and the, and the, and the drugs. It's that sudden thing of, like, you know, you know, MDMA for 25 quid a pill and 20 quid to get into some warehouse and, you know, and they'd have equipment there and, you know, so the, the organisers would be running off over the fields with bin bags full of money, you know. It's, uh, it, yeah, it, it was a funny, funny old time, really, the 90s. Yes. And did the, did the, um, did the, uh, kind of the theatre group, did, the, when did this kind of, did it have a kind of moment where it kind of ended? Yeah, I guess it did. I think we sort of, we really, we ended abroad. We ended sometime, you know, 88, 89 is when the Tibetan-Ukrainian mountain troop finally kind of bit the dust. And then it, you know, evolved into various other things. Like I say, I got involved with Circus Hazard and, and busking, and, you know, and busking on my own. 
And yeah, I mean, it, you know, we've all sort of, we've all kind of, like I say, everything evolves, doesn't it? I mean, yes. you know, there's a few people, few people from the troupe ended up as part of the Seven Kevins, uh, and then a couple of other people ended up as part of Nick Turner's All Stars, and you know, we're all sort of carried on doing things, but you know, the 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 idea, the Tibetan Ukrainian Mountain Troupe, that kind of thing ended. It was, you know, it it was of a time, you know. Yeah, absolutely. God, I've always wanted to get a member of the Seven Kevins, actually, because I saw them once at Rumbra Village Hall and thought they were amazing. <laughs> oh, they were fantastic. They were they were fantastic. Well, there's not many of them left now. I've, you know, there's only a, there's only a few few of them left now. Yeah, I would imagine. Sadly. I know the Tofu Love Frogs. They're still well. They're not going, are they? But you know, they did well. I think they only do um, royal performances now. They do for for Will <laughs> for Will and Kate, <laughs> or Harry and Meghan. I don't know. One of the the young rules, the wrong the young royals. We love them. So then, what happens to you in the nineties then? Before you become part of the Glastonbury Kids Fields? Uh, well, like I say, I you know I I. I moved, you know, I ended up in Ruffham and I started, I took on this project to do up this old gymnasium in Ruffham. Uh, and I put on a couple of fairs there and we raised some money and we were sort of, we were kind of funding Green Deserts at that point. And then I took, I think that's how it happened, is I took Green Deserts to, to um, Glastonbury and then it just wasn't, you know, the Green Desert just wasn't sort of happening, really. And so, we, you know, we gradually sort of the Green Desert thing just sort of dropped out. Uh, it was sort of really sad, the Green Desert thing, because John Agnew had all this land and buildings and he had all this possibility. I mean, I can remember coming back from, you know, coming back from abroad and I was like, look, you can, you know, we can get set aside you can get paid to put all your land aside for seven years. Then it can be organic, and then you can do something really interesting. But, you know, John Agnew, sadly, John Agnew wasn't really real. He was, you know, people had warned me about this. Everybody said, oh, he'll revert to type. And, of course, as soon as, you know, as soon as his dad died and he attained a title and all the rest of it, he did. He did exactly that. He, you know, he returned to type, unfortunately. Oh, is he still alive? A huge opportunity that was missed there because it was a, you know, it's like, I think it was like 5,000 acres, Ruffham Estates. Yeah. And they had, you know, there was this perfect time where they could have done set aside for seven years, made all their land organic and have done something really interesting. But, you know, it's like the voting for Corbyn thing. People don't really want to take, you know, people just want to carry on, don't they? They don't want to do anything different or you know when when you really offer people the opportunity to sort of you know go out on a bit of a limb and change things people are like oh no i prefer this old fluffy stinky blanket you know <laughs> and uh yes and it's so it's very sad i mean if you can you know what's a very good uh comparison is that green desert started at exactly the same time as the alternative energies um uh, centre in McCuncliffe. Oh, yes. They started exactly the same time. And, you know, McCuncliffe now is, I think it's, you know, it's one of the major tourist attractions of Wales and the country. You know, it's done fantastic things. 
It's trained loads of people. It's you know it's got all sorts of courses going on. You know it's it's a it's a really you know beacon of light. And Green Deserts doesn't exist. Yeah, you know, it's disappeared. It's completely disappeared. I mean, it did turn a lot of people on. I mean, I think uh, Bob Flowerdew was one of the original members, and you know, so it did it did sort of it did turn a lot of people on. But ultimately, there's zero that you can point at and say, oh, this is what Green Deserts achieved, you know? Yeah, it's such a shame. And I think John passed away, didn't he? Has he passed away? Yeah, he did, yeah. He got, he, he got stomach cancer. And, uh, and he, you know, he evicted everybody from the properties and, you know, so, yeah, it's a, bit of a, it's a kind of a, well, you know, you know how they say about people are sort of signposts in your life, don't they? He's a, you know, he's a definitely a signpost of how not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sad. it's know, sadly because that was, you know, there was this massive opportunity. It's like Prince Charles, isn't it? You know, he bangs on about organic and this, that, and the other. So why hasn't he opened up his place as a as a commune? You know, and invited a load of people in and set up something, and instead, you know, he's out there building fake pound lands you know it's uh it's it's very sad it's a bit sad that yes people don't have the courage of their convictions which i have to say you know with all my dealings with michael and you know we've you know we haven't always seen eye to eye i have to say michael on a lot of levels he has you know he has walked the walk I know, and he's put, he's so put, built, he, and he's and he's had built. to manoeuvre and put up with quite a lot because I remember it was either eighty nine or ninety where there was a huge amount of fight in between the security and I don't know drug gangs from Bristol and you know things were getting you know vehicles getting burnt out and you know he he could have just said oh, I've had enough but he he kept it going so you got to say yeah know. he has and and more more than that like I say you know he's built. He's built fifty homes in the in the village with stone mined from the ground, you know that are, are like similar to council houses. He's you know he's he's created a huge amount of work for people. He's you know he's rebuilt the village hall. He's you know he's yeah he's done he's actually he has ploughed a huge amount of the festival money back into the ground. And of course, if he hadn't basically invited the convoy in. Uh, the festival probably wouldn't exist now, and it certainly wouldn't. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be any good because out of those people grew the whole naughty corner. You know the tofu love frogs. You know the lost vagueness. All of that stuff. Yes. That all came from the convoy. You know that all. All of that stuff basically came from you know the so-called convoy. I would say. Yeah. But it came from those people who were sort of outsiders and who were sort of shunned by everybody and he had a oh yeah the mutoid wasn't the mutoid um waste uh, joe was it joe joe rush wasn't it and and his gang as well which was quite extraordinary to see can you remember yeah. the mutoids yeah yeah i know them all very well i mean they sort of uh they came they came back to the country a bit before us they they all ended up in a village in italy at one point right they all got sort of taken in by a sort of communist village in Italy. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, all those people. And, and actually, Michael, you know, Michael has given all those people place. And, he, you know, he gave us space as well. I mean, way back in the sort of middle of the 80s when we were, 
you know, we when, when it was, you know, it was very. I mean, we were kind of we opposed, we weren't we didn't really like paying festivals. We didn't really we didn't really believe that people should have to pay to go to a festival. You know. Yes. Um, at one point, we blagged a whole load of paint off of ICI. I managed to somehow convince ICI to give us a whole load of paint, and I phoned Michael up and said, "Oh, can we come? You know, can we come to the farm?" And paint our buses because we were constantly on the you know on the run really, uh, and we very rarely had somewhere we could be and be sort of safe. And he was like, "Yeah, fine." And so we all we went to went to Worthy Farm. It was like 1981 or something, and we painted we painted all our buses rainbow. You know, we were like the first people to have kind of painted up vehicles. Excellent. And of course, we were sort of we were kind of blagging this idea of travelling around the country as the Tibetan-Ukrainian mountain troop, and nobody really... The police and the authorities weren't quite sure what we were. They thought maybe we were sort of an Eastern European travelling show. So we kind of, for quite a while, we actually managed to to fool them. Excellent. And sort of travel around, you know, without any problems. But it gradually got hotter and hotter, and then, of course, they sort of... uh, you know, they put this sort of, you know, there was a sort of siege and they kind of surrounded the convoy everywhere they went. And, you know, and that's when we left in 84, when it just became sort of, it just became ridiculous. Yeah. So then how does it, so from, from sort of like the, the early 90s to roughly, <laughs> roughly now, um, which is now quite a few decades. I mean, do, do you then sort of keep in the world of kind of entertainment and, and fairs and festivals and then eventually sort of run the kids the kids' field at Glastonbury. How does that kind of link together? Well, how it links together is I, you know, I I had a field, so I had a field which is now the Greenpeace field at um, at Glastonbury up until 1992 was the last year I did that field, and you know we were we at that point we were the sort of naughty corner. We were the 24 hour a day people, and 94 it all sort of it just I just. I don't know. It just was all too much for me. By the end of the festival in 94, I was like, I don't want to do adults anymore. It sort of, it just, I don't know. It, the vibe had changed. And I just, I got to this point where I had small children and I was kind of bored of pulling, you know, trippers out of the mud. And, you know, I sort of just got to that point where I was like, oh, goddamn adults, look after yourselves. <laughs> and so I had a year off, 93, I had a year off, and then completely out of the blue, um, about six weeks before the festival in 94, Michael phoned me up and sort of said, oh, you know, I've got this real problem with my children's area. It's just, I've looked at the aerial photographs and there's nothing really going on there. Would you, you know, would you fancy coming in doing something with it? And so that, and that's, you know, and that's, so 1994 is when I took over what what had been previously the children's area and called it the kids' field. Excellent, yes. Because I used to sort of, I used to, it was often, it was Jacob who used to do the healing field that I used to sort of get my free ticket and go and help him sort of during that weekend. So do you get to meet the other people who have all got their kind of fields at Glastonbury on those? Yeah, kind of... yeah, yeah. Of course, I know all these people. You know, I know Jacob. I know all these people from eons back, <laughs> you know, Liz Elliot and all the people, you know, all the people up in the Greenfields and Sarah Mumro and... All those people, you know, I I know loads of people. And of course, Ray Parks, who who, who built the Dragon, and 
I mean, I have connections with all those people going way back, actually. Yes, God, we all kind of know each other, you know. Amazing. So when did you, I mean, because one of the people I met at one of Jacob's little 10-day camps at Glastonbury, many, not Glastonbury, but somewhere in Pilton, I think, all that area. And that's when I first met uh, Charlie Barley, the famous Charlie. So when and and he was just a mes. I mean, he was one of those characters that I was mesmerised by. He was so funny. How did you? Yeah, where did you? He's a great character. Still, still wandering around Glastonbury, in his in his funny hat. You know, handing out you know anarchic literature. I would imagine. I haven't seen him for a while, but I imagine he's probably a massive anti-vaxxer, anti-lockdown conspiracy theorists <laughs> <laughs> I know he used to put graffiti up in in Latin didn't he he was that he was that <laughs> around Glastonbury which was just because he he's a great character he's a lovely man lovely he, man absolutely the best so did you get to meet him just in the usual way that we get to meet these characters at feel uh, festivals I mean I kind of know all the I sort of if I you know I know all these people from way back from Stonehenge and you know, from all those sort of, you know, all those different, you know, Green and Common and, you know, for, for all these thousands of festivals from years and years. And it's, and it's wonderful for me as well because I see, you know, I see the kids growing up and, you know, and then, you know, and they're now running their own fairs like Boomtown and all the rest of it. These, you know, they're all, all, lots of them are sort of kids that have come through the kids' field, you know, they've sort of at some point. Yes. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah, there's a major connection between all of us. Fantastic. And just kind of, are you, is, is Glastonbury happening next year and are you going to be part of it? Glastonbury is definitely happening this year. Excellent. It's definitely happening this year. I think they're waiting, I think they're waiting for the various things to blow over before they make any big announcements. But, uh, yeah, Diana Ross is still on, you know, Billie Eilish is still on, Taylor Swift is still on, all those big names. I'm just starting to book people now. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's all, it's all, it's all happening. And of course, and they have kind of, they've, they've taken back on um, Melvin Benn to ensure that the thing does happen. Right. So, um, so I, 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 yeah, I don't doubt that it will happen. What, what will be interesting to see is, you know, whether we go down the COVID passport thing or whether we just go down the lateral flow. And my feeling is that we'll go down the lateral flow path because it's the path of least resistance. Yeah, I think that's the only way, really. I think by, yeah, I think it's just... Um... I mean, that's how everything happened this summer. And I think the, the COVID passport thing, it's... It's sort of nonsense. I mean, it's all kind of nonsense on one level, um, but I don't, I don't, I can't see the COVID passport fl- working. But I, I think it probably will work when it comes to airplane tickets and passports. I think we will all be locked into that thing. I don't, don't know whether there's a way out of it. No, I think um, you're absolutely right. I can't, um, you know, it's one of those places, isn't it, where, where when you're at, with your passport, you know, you know you can't do too much arguing or back chat. Can you just... Well, certainly not for us anymore anyway, because, you know, with 27 countries that we're not entitled to visit anymore, isn't there? No, brilliant idea. <laughs> well, genius, wasn't it? Taking back control. Fuck, yeah. what a disaster. What an absolute... 
I mean, that was horrible. You know, that was something that happened while we were at Glastonbury. The vote came in in 2016, and people literally lost their shit. I mean, it was just one of the most depressing, horrible events ever. Yes. Just a disaster. It is a disaster. But, you know, unfortunately, we, you know, we do tend to live in a country where, you know, the fish just go round the bowl and every now and then they notice the castle at the bottom and, you know, they're (laughs) shocked to see it. Oh, look, there's a castle. (laughs) It's, oh, 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 look, there's a castle. (laughs) Have you seen the castle? Yeah, it's frightening. It's really quite, I don't, you know, yeah, really, really beyond shocking, isn't it? Yes, no, it's mental. It was not a good period. We had, you know, America, well, we had Brexit, and then we had America, and that was like, oh, my God. And then we had the 2019 election, which was, for me, was a kind of a really, yeah, very, very depressing moment. I don't know that we'll, we will never get back to that point again. I mean, you know, Keith, Keith is, you know, well, God, what is he? I don't know. Yes, I think... Very depressing time for politics in this country. I think he's holding the baton for the next one to come along. So, um, I don't know. We Yes, it's not good. But then, you know, I'm slightly curious because, you know, Boris is one of those without... Jeez. But, you know, he, he you know, he's currently really in the shit, isn't he? Let's face it, he's not... He's well, not... he is, but, you know, I also think there's a certain amount... There's so much... You know, this is what Trump did all the time. There's all these sort of red herrings. Because while all that crap is going on, you know, they're privatising the NHS and they're pu- pushing through the Police and Immigration Act and they, you know, and they've just capped the benefits and, you know, and they've unlocked, you know, gone away with the triple lock on pensions. You know, there's actually so much huge, huge stuff going on. And then there's a whole load of froth about whether some people brought their own booze or not. I mean, it's sort of, it's, again, it's, quite depressing yes it's a it's a de- it's a definitely a diversion tactic isn't it really and um it's it's shit. so look Ooh. last last kind of question i mean what if you could have said something like to your 16 18 year old self you know with the 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 wisdom that you've or the experience as well um that you've had over the decades is there anything you would have just said god you'd have just whispered that in your in in that ear even if that person would have ignored you i just wonder if there was anything you would have thought yeah that would have been vaguely quite good i know most people say well you do it all again which is fair enough but there's often sometimes you think, you know, I mean, not always like don't do that, but well, I'll do this or do that as well. Or, yeah, I just wonder if there was anything particularly. I think the only thing I would ever have whispered to myself is, listen, mate, it'll be all right, you yeah, know, be... because I think, all, you know, all of us are kind of besieged with, you know, of, of fear, fear about ridiculous things and, you know, worries that we somehow or other won't make it through. I think that's what I, you know, that I, if, give the gift to everybody of like, listen, mate, it'll be all right. You know, follow your heart and, you know, and you'll be fine. Because I think that's that's really what it's about, isn't it? It's, a, you know, on your deathbed when you're lying there, you that's what you what you need to be able to think is like, was I a decent person? Did I do, you know, not whether I was a great person or whatever, but was I a sort of generally a decent person? Did I? Did I equip myself honourably, you know? Yes, did I do the right thing? And I think that's the sort of almost the most important thing is, you know, in the internal dialogue is, you know, are you actually, you know, do, are, you, are you a sort of an all right person? 
Yes. That's more important than anything else, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. No. I always think so. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Did you do the right thing? Well, he's brilliant. Oh, look, Tony, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. I mean, just on that Seven Kevins, because I'd love to find a member of the Seven Kevins. I have to say there's not much on the internet about them. If you've got, do you have any contacts on the Seven Kevins? Well, the person, the, probably the best person to get in touch with really the Seven Kevins would possibly be Will. Now, I don't know how you'd get in touch with Will. What's his surname? Uh, Will Whitney. Otherwise known as Lugless Slog. <laughs> um, who's the most amazing guitar player uh, who was part of the Seven Kevins. The other, the other two people, the other, other people that I know are in, are in Spain. Pete died recently. I don't know whether you knew Pete. Who was a brilliant artist, absolutely phenomenal artist. Uh, he died quite recently. Um, and then there's Jimmy and, oh, what's her name? A couple, the Irish couple, Jimmy and, can't remember her name. Yeah. But, um, yeah, they were just one of those great bands, actually, weren't they? But this... oh, They were of a moment. They were definitely of a moment. And they were... You know, they were the most wild bunch of alcoholics you've ever met. Yes, they they were they were phenomenal. Yeah, they were they were a phenomenon of the time. Yeah, and like I said, I, I think it, I don't know who put them on, but they were at some Rumbra Village Hall, and it was just amazing. And I just always kind of remember that and thinking, and you know, and now with the internet, you think oh, you can sometimes find these things, but actually, there's not much about the Seven Kevins on. Well, I tell you, the one way that you would find a will would be if you if you search for the Wistic Mankers and then they transmogrified into surf messengers. So you might find them like that. God, this is this is always exciting actually. Right. Wistic Mystic. Wankers. Wankers, the surf <laughs> Yeah. I think that's who they were, that's who he was last. Yeah. I see, I see Nick Turner all the time, but he's not very well, I'm afraid. He's, uh, he's, 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 you know, he's on the voyage. He's, he's passing to the other side gradually. Yes, that's, um, that's it. But Will Whitney, did you say? Yeah. Oh, okay, that's good. That's 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 that's, that's the sort of start, anyway. And uh, the mystic wang, mystic uh, wang mangas. Jesus. Anyway, look, I won't say that. Yeah, one. it was sort of. It was slightly. We sort of had a bit of a running with uh, cunning stunts, and so we decided that we should be the mystic mangas. It was a kind of a bit of a sort of. It was a bit of a take on the cunning stunts. Yes. Do you remember them? Yes. It's of his time, isn't it? God, we loved all those. Didn't and we? I don't think there's. I don't know that any of them are left because Erin. I knew Erin quite well, who was an amazing character. Actually, she was a bit of a. She was a kind of a mystic and and did readings and stuff. Um, but she died a few years ago. Right. I, I didn't really know any of the rest of the cunning stunts. 
There may be some of them. There may be some of them left. I don't really know. I know. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll track it down. I'll have a look anyway. But look, this has been... Well, Tony, thank you ever so much for this. This has been brilliant. And where actually, where are you at the moment? I'm, so I'm in West Wales. I'm in, I'm in the Preselis. Nice. Up in the hills, up in the, in, the, in the wild, wild, wet, wet West Wales. Yes. Well, I, I came to the Welsh dance camp a few times and... Uh, oh, right, OK, that's not far from me. I know all those people. And my mum was quite a big part of the, the, the dance camp. Yeah, and then there was that guy who built his little hobbit place, um, which we went to visit once as well, um, who's a fiddle player, I think. You know, the uh, guy... Are you talking about Tony Tony Welsh? Or are yeah, you talking... Tony, Tony, is it Wrench or some Tony right, son? Wrench, that's it. Yeah, yeah there was a, actually, it was a quite a nice little programme on BBC One the other day about um, the sort of community next door to there, Briff Deer. Yes, because we visited that as a sort of, I don't know why, but yeah, and... Um, oh, shit, sorry, I just put on... Sorry, I was just Googling Seven Kevins and that came up. Um, yeah, so we, we visited, we had a day out and saw t- Tony and then walked around the little community, which is that house, and uh, and there was, a, yeah, down by the river, there was a woman who was living in some shack. I must admit, it was quite dark it was under all the trees and um anyway then she said oh yes i've got a daughter who's at university the uea in norwich i was like bloody hell that's amazing so um <laughs> yeah well i i live just up the road from another another sort of whole village actually called lamas the lamas village right one of the first places well i think it's the first place to to get permission under this uh one earth um legislation Amazing. That is fantastic. Well, look, that's been cool. But look, thank you ever so much again for your time. And it's really appreciate this. If you, yeah, I mean, you know, um, if you want, I could always send you the link and. Um, send me a link, definitely. Send me a link. So but, I'm, I'm very easy. I'm, I've got very easy email. I'm tony at kidsfield.com. Yeah, that's very kidsfield.com. And obviously that's with a Z, or otherwise their parents would be goats. <laughs> <laughs> yes, got you. Um, <laughs> I will. Yeah, I'll send you the link, and then you know you can always use it if you've got. Have any... you've had a look at my website? Have I have. Yes, I was looking at your website earlier. So uh, it's... it needs a bit of refreshing. Unfortunately, you know, obviously, I've been keeping all this stuff going on my own. You know, on on my own account for the last two years without any Glastonbury. So it's sort of in it's in desperate need of updating and. Uh, which will be happening in the next couple of months. Yes, Kidsfield, Glastonbury. Yes, that's fantastic. I know it's amazing though. It's very bright and green, so it's um, nice. Well, it's good. It'll be it'll be nice to get back there and start planning. It's going to come round. It's in bulk in a few weeks' time, and then it's the sol- uh, equin- spring equinox, and suddenly absolutely Narus. It's all going to happen. It's going to be very quick, isn't it? Really? It will be Narus, and then yes, and then the, the then then we'll, the world will be set alight, and we'll be into the Roaring Twenties. <laughs> That's such a nice thought. Yes. Well, look. Have a great evening. Well, night. And um, look, take care of yourself, and I'll and I'll pol- and I'll um, email you this. Um, yeah. Yeah. That'd um, be nice. That'd okay. Be nice. Yeah. Well, it's nice to chat, and uh, I'm surprised that I remember as much as I do, to be honest. Yeah, that was, that was the, the narrative's <laughs> fine. That was all good. OK, look, take care and all the best. All right, lovely. Lovely to talk to you. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers, mate. 
And that was me in conversation with uh, Tony, sometimes known as Tibetan Tony, um, now doing the kids field at Glastonbury Festival, kids with a Z, if you want to uh, go to the website, where magic lives, and lots more besides. It looks fantastic, but also was part of the Tibetan-Ukrainian mountain troupe. If you Google away, as you do in the 21st century, you'll find out a little bit more information about the free festival movement that we love. Anyway, this is the uh, David Eastall C86 show. Yes, I know it's indie pop, but sometimes other stuff as well. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can just do C86 show. Um, keep it positive and groovy. Otherwise, just don't bother. And all these have been archived. You will find interviews with various other people. From the, uh, I don't know, the scene, I suppose, counterculture. I don't know what it's called. It sounds a bit pretentious. But anyway, look away. Look and look away. You can look through it. There's actually quite a lot of interviews. So um, good luck on that. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>